Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter number 1 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter number 1. Uh, the Lord's just been all in my heart with this passage of Scripture, and I think I must have prepared half a dozen sermons, amen, before I, we finally settle on what we believe the Lord wants us to preach on this morning. But uh, I guess if it don't go well, you'll know I was wrong, amen. What a blessing it is to be with you. Wasn't that good this morning in Sunday school hour? I can tell you all are a little slow. Could be something to do with being filled with about three gallons of gravy and about 18 biscuits. And, uh, but that's all right. We'll go ahead and, and go on with the preaching of the Word of God. And, and if, you've, if you've got to amen me, amen me. If you've got to belch, belch. Amen. And we'll just stop right there. First Samuel chapter number 1 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. If you're a student of the Bible, you are familiar, no doubt, with this passage of Scripture. Uh, speaks of a woman by the name of Hannah in the Old Testament. She was the mother of Samuel. And the Word of God records for us her, uh, her journey in seeing God grant her answer to prayer and give her a son. Uh, this chapter begins this way. Verse number 1 says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. When the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. Her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. As And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing it is to be with your people in your house, your spirit, Lord, ministering already amongst us. What a blessing it is that we might be able to meet with you this morning. Father, I pray that you would stir each heart. You know exactly, precisely what we need this morning. And Father, I believe with all my heart, I would not stand up here if I did not believe uh, that you had tailor-made the truth that will be delivered to us this morning, that it might speak distinctly and directly to our hearts, Father, that we might be made more into the image of Christ, that we might be drawn closer unto You. Lord, I cannot see into the hearts of each and every person here. I can't even see into my own heart. But I know You try the reins and You search the hearts, Lord. And I'm asking You, Father, to accomplish a work in us this morning. Uh, Let it not be said that it was in vain that we came, but let us have our hearts open and may heaven deal with us for Your glory. And we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we do love You this morning and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to draw your attention to a phrase that's given in verse number 5 of our text. Verse 5 says this about Hannah. Well, let's go back. Let's look at verse 4. It says, When the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and all her sons and her daughters portions. Verse 5 says, But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. And then as a little addendum, as a little note that is placed at the end of this act of kindness and this act of grace, and yea, I might say this act of pity on the part of Elkanah, we are reminded of something. The Bible tells us, but the Lord had shut up her womb. I'm fascinated by that statement, for that goes contrary to our concept of how we view God dealing in our lives. But we find that the Lord's dealings with Hannah do not end at verse number 5. What a sad, tragic tale indeed it would be if the last word said about Hannah was there in verse 5 that the Lord had shut up her womb. 
Uh, Notice with me though, this is not the end of God's working with her, but rather the beginning of God's working with her. Do you remember that Solomon made a statement one time in the book of Ecclesiastes that the end of a matter is better than the beginning? You might be upset at God for where you're at right now. You might be discouraged with your circumstances. You might be questioning what God's doing. But hold on, friend, the end has not come yet. There's no telling what God may do in your situation. And indeed, we find that God continued to deal with her. For we find another similar phrase given down uh, later on in the chapter. Uh, Notice what our text says, not only in what we've read back in verse number 5, but listen to what the Bible says in verse 19 of this chapter. It says that they rose up in the morning, talking about Elkanah and his family. They rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house to Ramah. The Bible says that Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So first we've seen that the Lord shut up her womb. Then we see that the Lord remembered her. And we'll say a word about what that means before we're done this morning. But I want you to look over in chapter number 2, because it doesn't end there either. There's one more statement we find about the Lord and His dealings with Hannah. Verse 21 of chapter 2 says this, that the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. For lack of a better title, I want to preach to you this morning on the Lord and Hannah. And I want us to consider how God worked in Hannah's life and what can we learn. You know, this chapter is really a chapter. These two chapters are chapters about prayer. We're getting ready to have a prayer meeting on Friday night. I said we're getting ready to have a prayer meeting on Friday night. I said I hope we're getting ready to have a prayer meeting on Friday night. Now, if if that upsets you, then at least 14 of y'all shouldn't be upset. You ought to put your name on that list back there. Amen? Uh, There's more to being a praying church than just saying we're a praying church. There's more to being a praying church than just saying we're a praying church. You know what it takes to be a praying church? You've got to be a praying church. So I'm encouraged, and let me in gentleness uh, just encourage you. We need to get that filled out back there. We believe in prayer around here. We say we do. I hope we do. I trust we do. That we believe in prayer. Prayer is the very vehicle of God's providence, His workings in humanity and His workings amongst His people. And when you read these two chapters, what you're really struck by is Hannah's prayer life. Floating in behind all of these various dealings, the Lord shutting up her womb, the Lord remembering her, the Lord visiting her, is a vibrant, though we might say rudimentary prayer life of a woman who has not much else than a barren womb and a broken heart. Can I just share a few thoughts with you? That'd be all right this morning. I ain't even into preaching yet, but can I just notice a few things? You know, it don't take much to be a prayer. Hannah was not a mighty woman as the world would reckon her. She is the cast away. She is the uh, the black sheep. She is the woman that the world would have looked at and deemed to be useless as regards her husband and as regards her worth in life. And yet it is not Penina that we're preaching on this morning. It's Hannah this morning. What made the difference in her life? She prayed. Hannah prayed. Hannah talked to God and sought the Lord's help in these things. I'm struck by the fact that she is an unlikely candidate to be a prayer warrior. It would be if you or I were picking prayer warriors in the Bible, we'd pick the strongest, we'd pick the mightiest, we'd pick the best looking, we'd pick the, uh, you know, the, the most charismatic, we'd pick the smartest that was around there, somebody like me, amen? That's who we'd pick. But instead, the Lord draws special attention to a woman that is bereft and barren and bankrupt of seemingly any purpose or value in life. And that's the woman that God says, watch how this woman prays and how she gets things from God. I'm fascinated by the fact that verse number 3 goes out of its way to tell us who the priests were. The Bible says in verse 3, this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Isn't it interesting the way the Holy Ghost goes out of his way to tell us that? Now, if you're a student of your Bible, you know who Hophni and Phinehas are. You know that they are probably two of the wickedest high priests ever to serve in that office. Uh, You know that uh, the next chapter goes to great lengths to describe their wickedness and their depravity. It was in that setting that Hannah would go and pour out her heart before God. You know what it's a reminder of to me? Hey, listen, you don't have to be in a perfect church or surrounded by perfect people to be a praying person. 
Your prayer life ought not be hitched to someone else's faithfulness to God. If you're looking to the Hophni and Phineases of this world to lead you to a good prayer life, you'll never get there. She looked past the failings of humanity and said, hey, these people may not be anyone to look up to. They may be failing in what they're doing, but God never fails in what He does. I will look past them and I'll look to a God that is always and ever faithful. She goes and prays with broken heart before God. But all of this begins with us being reminded that the Lord had shut up her womb. Can I notice a few things in this passage? Look at verse 2 with me. We find the Bible says that, uh, that Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Think with me for just a moment this morning about the pain of this afflicted woman. We find that there are basically two things said about her that ought to lead us to believe she had a pretty rough life. One, notice with me the battle that was in her home. Uh, The Bible tells us that Elkanah had two wives. Not only did he have two wives, he had two wives that, that didn't get along. I don't know that any man's ever had two wives that did get along. Somebody say amen there. But certainly the Bible stresses to us that this would have been a home of conflict and discord. We know that at this time in the history of the nation of Israel, there was a pattern that was given. It was clear according to Scripture what God had done in the Garden of Eden. Uh, And then by implication throughout the rest of the Scripture, there's no allowance that is made for polygamy. But it was a very common practice at that time in human history. The Hebrews were not exempt from that. There seems to be times that they participated in that even more than people around them. But certainly it was never God's intention. It was never God's design. It was never God's order that there be two wives in the home. And like anything, hey, listen, anything that's got two heads is bound to not live long and to live an ugly life. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, The fact is, she probably lived in a home of constant battles. She probably lived in a home that was constantly a fight and constantly problems and constant affliction from those that are around her. Can I say this? Hey, listen, you and I, we may live imperfect lives. In fact, I'd venture a guess that all of us live imperfect lives. We may find that our life is not as peaceful as we wish. We may find that our life has more turmoil than we ever signed up for. But that does not mean we cannot do great things through God and through prayer. I think about the battle that was in her home, but then I think about the barrenness of her womb. That really was Hannah's main problem. She could not have children. Now, for a person not be able to have children today, it is a tragic thing. I've prayed with families as they battled that. I've seen God grant some, and I've seen God in His grace and eternal wisdom not grant to others that ability. I've seen the Lord shut wombs. I've seen the Lord open wombs before, and certainly I don't want to diminish the pain and the angst that comes uh, from not being able to enjoy that aspect of life. But can I say that in Hannah's day, uh, there was a stigma attached to it above and beyond merely the pain of not being able to enjoy having children, uh, not being able to enjoy raising children. I don't guess women enjoy having children, amen, but enjoy raising children. I don't know if they enjoy raising children. Why do you have children, amen? But to her, there there was an angst that would have gone beyond that. She would have been reckoned. And the amazing thing, and don't get all bowed up on me because this is the truth, the amazing thing was that her husband loved her at all. Uh, Not necessarily because that would have been an appropriate response from him, but because culturally in that day, if a woman couldn't have children, she was uh, most oftentimes put away and treated as a widow. God gave Elkanah a a love for her that went beyond her utility, that went beyond her ability uh, to bring him children and to produce for him heirs. And can I say this? Hey, even at our most barren moments, God still loves us. Even at our most barren moments, God still loves us. It's interesting. You know the name Elkanah means God possesses? In other words, his name meant he belonged to God. He was possessed of God. And he had this great love in his heart for this barren wife. You know, it's a reminder to me. You know why God loves you and me even when we're barren? Because we belong to him. We're his possession. Amen. We're his child. So he had this great love for her, but that did not dismiss that did not erase, that did not alleviate the pain that she was feeling. And he tried, by the way. He tried in the most clumsy, uh, dumb way that a man could ever try. And I've been guilty of doing stuff like this. You men have too. And if you won't admit it, we'll just ask your wife and she'll tell the truth on you. He looks at her and he says, Am I not better to thee than ten sons? 
That was his way of saying, am I not enough for you? This isn't part of my message. It's probably part of one of the half a dozen that I prepared. But isn't it interesting how she is deemed presumptuous for desiring to have a child? Can I say there will be times in your life and mine when in our prayer life people will deem what we're asking of God presumptuous. Elkanah was saying, ain't, ain't I enough for you, honey? Aren't, aren't I enough? I, aren't I better to you than ten sons? And I don't think this was merely an emotional statement. I think it was an e- economical statement. He was saying, you're being treated better, and it's very likely he's implying that Penina had ten children. He's saying, I'm treating you better than I'm treating Penina. The fact of the matter is, listen, the world may look at what we're asking of God and deem it to be too much and deem it to be presumptuous. I'm glad God never looks down and says you're asking too much. I'm glad God never looks down and deems us presumptuous for desiring things from the Lord. There'll be people that'll try to get you to downgrade your prayer life. There'll be people that'll try to get you to just be more realistic in what you're asking God for. Listen, I'd rather, I'd rather have more faith and more dependence on God than less of either. I'd rather ask big things of God, and I might not get them, but that's okay. I can love Him enough and trust Him enough. If I don't get them, that'll be alright. But I'd rather ask Him for great things and get some of those great things than never ask for anything from God and never receive anything to speak of. So she was a barren woman. She was a woman whose life would have been deemed meaningless. She would have lived in perpetual angst and sorrow and heartache, and she would have been reminded of it. We're told that later on in the passage, that she was reminded of it consistently, what her problem was. You ever ever have a problem so deep that you can't get away from it? I bet you have. You ever had a problem so deep you couldn't get away from it? You tried to put it out of your mind, but it kept finding its way back in. You tried to distract yourself with other things, but it seemed like that problem, that that difficulty was bent on being ever-present in your attention and in your focus. That would have been the life that she was living. I see the pain of the afflicted, but it does not end there. Look down at verse number 6 with me. The Bible tells us that her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, and I think that he is talking about Elkanah, that when Elkanah went up to the house of the Lord year by year, that uh, that she went up to the house of the Lord as well. And so she provoked her. I think it's speaking of Penina. Therefore she wept and did not eat. You know, I noticed not only the pain of the afflicted, but I noticed the provoking of the adversary. You say, what's the significance there? Well, first off, I think it's no accident that the word adversary is used. A lot of words could have been used there, but the Holy Ghost wrote it out in big bold letters, adversary. It reminds me of the New Testament when we're told that we have an adversary, the devil, who is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. But you know what I find here? And it's, it's an amazing and mystical and beautiful and tragic thing all at one time, the way that the devil and God will co-opt the work of one another. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, God will take something that the devil's trying to mean for ill and he'll take it and turn it for good. That's what he did in the life of Joseph, didn't he? Uh, Joseph said that, my brethren, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. I'm glad that God can take the devil's handiwork and turn it and turn it into his handiwork for his glory. But you know something else I find? I find that in my life when God allots to me sorrow, that very often the adversary will come up along the side and co-opt that sorrow and use it for his own purposes. What do you think that the devil was trying to do in the life of Job? Who exactly was it that was in control of Job's life? It was uh, the Lord, of course, that was in control of Job's life. But you mark her down every time uh, in the darkness of the night, every time in the loneliness of the uh, early hours of the morning that Job began to feel heavily his burdens and his sorrow, mark her down that the devil was there to whisper in his ear and tell him that God had forgot about him. We find that though the Lord is working in Hannah's life, that the adversary comes along beside and tries to use what God is doing for his purposes, or we might say her purposes in this particular passage. What was the design? Well, I noticed a couple things. One, I noticed the design was to worry her. Verse number 6 was uh, tells us that the reason Penina did this was to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. In other words, Penina came along and laid out before her prospective scenarios of doom and gloom for the future. Uh, she came and robbed her present joy with a prospective future that may never have come to pass. Here she has Elkanah reminding her that he loves her. And then here comes Penina coming along and saying, yeah, but for how long? 
Here's Elkanah saying that I am more uh, precious to you or more valuable to you than ten sons, saying I'm taking care of you. I will continue to take care of you. When the Bible says that he gave her a worthy portion, it means he gave her a better and bigger part of the sacrifice that he offered than anyone else. He was treating her in a privileged manner, in a favored manner. But then here would come Panana and all of her pettiness, spite and jealousy and would whisper in her ear, it's only a matter of time before he gives up on you. You can't give him a child, if you can't give him a son, if you can't give him an heir. It's only a matter of time before he'll give up on you. Now, isn't that exactly how the devil does to you and me? Comes along and says, why would God put up with you? And the reality is we ain't got no good answer for that. And that's that's the reason we are so susceptible to that, because there is no good human answer for why God would put up with us. It's, it takes a heavenly answer to understand that. But the devil will come along and say, how long do you think God's going to be patient with you? It's trying to worry her, trying to get her focus off of the present blessings of her life and onto the prospective burdens that may come down the pike. Can I tell you something? We don't, and Christ made this abundantly clear, we don't add a cubit to our stature. We don't add a hair to our head by worrying. At the end of the day, worrying has no potency. It has no function, no utility. It cannot accomplish anything. One old fellow said that worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you don't go anywhere. And the devil comes along and tries to worry us as Penina did her. But then not only that, verse 7 says this, he did so year by year. Every year Elkanah would take his family up to Shiloh and there they would sacrifice. And every year Hannah would go and every year Penina would go. The Bible says this, that when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat year after year after year. This was a battle for her. Not only does the devil try to worry us, listen carefully, he tries to weary us. Can I tell you that the spiritual war, how many of you believe in spiritual warfare? You believe that the devil has a desire to destroy your life and my life and and that he is actively working to try to disrupt the work of God in our lives, that he has a vested interest in seeing God not get victory in our lives, us not grow closer to Christ and so on. Can I tell you something? The spiritual warfare we are engaged in, it is not skirmishes, it is a war of attrition. It is siege warfare. Can I tell you, the devil's a lot more patient than your average Baptist. He will uh, play the long game. He will entrench you and he will try to wear you down over time. How do you think the church got in the shape that it's in today? How do you think that happened? Year by year by year, the church gave an inch towards moving towards the world. And the world just kept inching further and further away from where it was 200 years ago. And little by little, inch by inch, foot by foot, the world has been brought to the place that, or the the church has been brought to the place that the world was at 200 years ago. How did we get there? It didn't happen overnight. The devil wearied the church. And he'll try to weary you as well. Uh, He won't come along and take one big bite out of your faith. He'll take nibbles at your faith. Little by little by little. So I see the provoking of the adversary. And what was Hannah's response to this? Look at verse 10. She did the right thing. The Bible says in verse 10 that she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. I see the prayer of the agonized. In other words, she took this burden, she took this heartache, she took this sorrow and trouble and brought every bit of it to God, uh, casting all of her care upon Him, for she knew that He cared for her. I noticed a couple things that I think are commendable about her prayer. One, I noticed it was a sorrowful prayer. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, uh, she had a problem so big that it intruded into her prayer closet And she was agonizing over her current circumstances. Uh, You know, one of the things, I want to be cautious how I say this. I'm thankful for every, every ounce of peace that God gives us. But part of the problem with a lot of our prayer life is we're not praying over anything worth caring about. Now, I don't think it's wrong to pray over anything. You go ahead and pray over it. Pray for a new TV. Pray for a new car. Pray for a new set of clothes. Pray for whatever. And if you, if you don't want to pray for that for you, pray for it for me. Amen. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for those things. But sadly, we have so stunted and limited our spiritual aspirations and ambitions that we're praying for paltry things. And so we find the prayer closet to be a boring and unengaging place. If we'd start to pray over things that are deep things, things that are big things, things that are eternal things, we would find it easier to pray with a sorrowful heart over things worthy of our sorrow. And then I noticed it was a sincere prayer. The Bible says she wept sore. 
The idea being it was not a superficial weeping. It was not merely a shallow veneer of sorrow. But her prayer was so sincere that she wept until she could weep no more. If you read further on in the passage, we won't take the time to, but you know how that she prayed to God. And the Bible says that uh, she only prayed with her lips and her heart, that she did not pray with her voice, that you could not hear the words coming out. And so Eli the priest assumes that she's drunken and reproves her and rebukes her. And she turns around and corrects him and she says that, It was out of the sorrow of her heart that she poured out her heart to the Lord. She wasn't praying to be heard of men. She was praying to be heard of God. It was a sincere prayer. Prayer was not merely an extracurricular activity for the Christian life. Prayer was not merely a, a, a telegraphing, a to borrow a word from the common lexicon of today, a virtue signaling of her spirituality to the world outside of her. Her prayer was a sincere matter. It was a thing between her and God. And so you know who she talked to about it? She talked to God and she sought His help and sought His uh, His peace and sought His strength. I see the prayer of the agonizing. But you know, and we we preached all around it, but can I, can I remind you of verse 5? Let's not miss verse 5. The Bible says, But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. You know what's interesting? I, I, this didn't occur to me till this moment, but notice the juxtaposition of verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, we hear of a blessing in Hannah's life, that Elkanah gave her a worthy portion and that Elkanah loved Hannah, but then we're reminded that the Lord had shut up her womb. You know, that care and that pity and that tenderness was produced by that barrenness in her life. Why did he treat her better than he treated Penina? Not necessarily because he did not love Penina, but because he knew the burdensome life that Hannah experienced. God took her burden and brought a blessing out of it. Then we're reminded in verse number 6, her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. We find that the Lord brought a blessing out of her burden and the devil brought a battle out of her blessing. In other words, because uh, the Lord had shut up her womb, it gave occasion for the devil to buffet her and to battle her and to try to destroy her. But you know what remains true in all of those? And here's what I want to say. I see in this uh, portion of Scripture the pain of the afflicted, the provoking of the adversary, the prayer of the agonizing. But the backdrop for all of this is the providence of the Almighty. In other words, in the blessings, God was working. In the battles, God was working. In the good things, God was working. And in what we would call the bad things, God was working. All of this is set across the backdrop of God's providence. Just in reading these two chapters, I notice that God was working in three places at this time. And I don't know that Hannah knew that God was doing this. We often know very little of what God's doing. I want to say that again because it's more profound than it sounds. We often know very little of what God's doing. I'm saying that we're seeing the tip of the iceberg. If we could see things the way God could see them, we'd look and say, well, I wish God would do something. You don't get it, man. He is doing something. He's doing more than one something. He's doing a bunch of somethings at the same time. It just may be they don't all have to deal with you. I see that God was working. Number one, God was working in her heart. God was bringing about a spiritual revelation and and revolution in her life. God was bringing her to a spiritual level she had not yet heretofore experienced. Can I say that very often it's through sorrow that God does this. Very often it's through sorrow that God does this. It's rare that it's through the blessings in our life. It's more often through the burdens and battles that God brings us to a deeper relationship with Him. Not only that, I see that God was working in her house. Uh, We find later on she sings a song unto the Lord of praise unto God. And Hannah talks about all the amazing things that God does and had done in her life. Talks about how He makes the poor rich and the rich poor. How He casts down armies and how that it's not through strength that we accomplish things. It's through prayer and through faith. But one of the things that he talks about, or that she talks about, she talks about the fact that God made the barren to bear children and caused her that had many children to become feeble. Now you say, what does that mean, preacher? What does that have to do with me? Well, it it strikes me that evidently not only was God working in Hannah's life, but evidently He was also working in Penina's life. Can I remind you, she had, we don't know how many children. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, history, I guess, for lack of a better term, commentary suggests she might have had ten children. We don't know. She might have had ten. She might have had one. She might have had ten thousand. We just know she had children. 
And God was working in their life. God was working in Hannah's life. God was working in Elkanah's life. Can I remind you, it's this very child that will be produced by this journey of faith that would go on to work in Eli, the high priest's life, and in Hophni and Phinehas' life, his sons. I'm saying this, God is doing something beyond just what He's doing in us. It might be He ain't just working on you. He could be working on your spouse too. That'd be good. Some of y'all have been praying for Him to do that for decades. It might be he's... That's okay, you can laugh. Wow, y'all just full of breakfast food. That's what it is. It could be he's working in your children's life. Man, I, I hope and pray to God he's working in my children's lives. I do. I, that, and I'm not saying that cavalierly. I pray that he works in my children's life. Could it be I get mad at him for doing what I've asked him to do? He was working not only in her house, but I find he was working in her homeland. You know who this son would be? He would be the last uh, judge and the first national prophet in the land of Israel. He would be the one that would take a horn of oil and pour it over the head of not just the first king, but the second king of Israel. He would be the one that would lead them into an entirely new era of civilization. He would be the one that would stand mightily to bridge the gap between ungodliness and and, and the children of Israel for an entire generation. Samuel was one of the mightiest men in all of Scripture. But it all began with a broken-hearted woman that didn't understand why she was barren before the Lord and before her husband. I'm saying that the providence of God is at hand in your life and my life and we don't always see it. And sometimes, you know, I was reminded of what the Hebrews writer says about the Old Testament saints that died in the faith. These all died in the faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off. This isn't in my message, but it's about to be, so I'm going to say it. It's interesting. Later on in her song of praise, you know what she says? She says that the Lord is able to make the barren to have seven children. Now, my basic elementary school math is not very good. But if I, if I can count without having to take my shoes off, I usually do okay. And later on in chapter number 2, listen to what the Bible says. We read this earlier. It's part of our text verse. But the Bible says in verse... Uh, in, excuse me, let's, let me find it here. Verse number... I'm in the wrong chapter. It ought not be there. Somebody say amen to that. Down in, <laughs> down in verse number 21 of chapter 2, that the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, again, let's do this together, all right? Two sons, right? Uh, one or two and, and, and three, and then one, which is Samuel, six children. And he said, what does that mean, preacher? She prayed evidently, and she believed God was going to give her seven. God only gave her six. You know what that did? Instead of disappointing her, it kept her praying throughout her life. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. I'm saying this, you're not always going to see everything God's doing. You're not always going to be aware of everything God's doing in your life. Faith looks beyond even this life and this realm to things that maybe it will never grasp, but to things that in eternity will become a reality. I see in this passage that the Lord shut up her womb. And then look down with me at verse number 19 of chapter 1. Would you look with me? We didn't read this. Let's read it together. Verse number 19 of chapter 1. The Bible says this. After Eli has spoken to Hannah and, 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 uh, and confirmed to her that God would give her a son, the Bible says in verse 19, "...and they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, And the Lord remembered her. Verse 20 says, Wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about, after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. So in verse 5 we're reminded that the Lord had shut up her womb. Hannah prays and seeks God's help and God's favor. And the Bible uses a fascinating phrase that's used several times about several individuals in the Bible. The Bible says that the Lord remembered Hannah. Now, what exactly does that mean? If you or I were to say we remember someone, we'd know what that means. It would mean we did not remember who they were and then we recollect who they are. But the word remember as it relates to God is sort of like the word repentance as it relates to God. Several times the Bible will say that the Lord repented. But the Lord can't repent. He's never sinned, right? But the word repentance means a change of mind. So what the Bible's saying really is this, that the Lord changed His mind about something. But I would say this, the Lord can't even really change His mind. You know why? Because He's immutable. He's the Lord God, He changeth not. So what it's really saying when it says God repents is God was going to do something or God was headed in a particular direction and then God turned and did an about face and changed to our perception what He was doing. So the word repentance, it's similar to what it means for us, but we have to take into account who God is. You know who God is? God is God. 
So his repentance looks a little different than your or my repentance. And it's the same way when the Bible says he remembered. Uh, you and I might say remember, and we mean we forgot something and we recollect it. But it's just the spirit of that word that's being used here. It means this, that it appeared as though God had forgotten Hannah. And we know God can't forget anything, right? We know that God is omniscient. He knows all things at all times, in all ways, in all places. But what it's saying is that God acted, God moved, God was prompted to work in her life. It looked like He had forgotten about her, but He hadn't forgotten about her. Instead, He was waiting patiently for the right time to work in her life. What was it that prompted that? I believe it was her prayer. I believe we can see it clearly from the text. She prays and begs God, and Eli says, God's heard you. And God is going to give you your prayer. What does it mean? Well, I noticed a couple things. One, that Hannah's prayer was remembered. Her prayer was remembered. It was her prayer that prompted this. Now, what does that tell us? Well, number one, it tells us that God heard her plea. She prayed and it did not fall on deaf ears. Eli may not have been able to have heard it. Elkanah may have not heard it. Penina may have not heard it. The other people worshiping there may have not heard it. But evidently the God of glory was paying attention to this poor, broken, barren woman in the land of Israel at the palace or at the tabernacle at Shiloh because he heard her prayer. You know, very often we want God in His hearing of our prayer for it to be some grand supernatural spectacle. We like to feel the presence and joy of God flood into our heart and feel an immediate relief of our anxiety, an immediate relief of our problems, an immediate relief of our burdens. But very often when God hears our prayers, we may not sense anything different on this side of glory. But that does not mean that God did not hear her prayers. Part of faith in prayer is believing God to do what He said He would do. God said He would hear our prayers. And therefore, faith would demand of us that we respond as though God has heard us, believing that God would keep His Word. We see that He heard her prayer, and evidently He helped her problem. So why do you say that, preacher? Because the next year, uh, she had a little baby boy. God had delivered and heard her prayer and had helped her problem. Can I say that there's no problem you or I face that is beyond His capability? There's no problem you or I face that's beyond his capability. He has, he creates life. He casts down kings and emperors. He raises up rulers. There's nothing. God has done such bigger things than what you're asking him to do. God has done such bigger things. You understand the God you and I pray to is the God that created all things. Doesn't matter what you ask him for. God's done bigger. Now, that doesn't mean God will do what you ask Him. It depends on if it's His will. It depends on if it is what is best for you. God always operates within the parameters of His providence and His love for you and I. But I promise you, anything you ask Him, if He doesn't do it, it's not because He can't. It's because it's not what's best for you and I. So I see that Hannah's prayer was remembered. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 20. When she has this child, the Bible says this, Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come about, after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son. And what did she call him? She called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. The name Samuel means heard of God. You know what evidently was true? Not only did the Lord remember Hannah's prayer, but evidently not only was her prayer remembered, her promise was remembered. She had told the Lord in an oath earlier in the chapter when she prayed and called out to God, if you'll give me this child, Lord, I'll give this child right back to you. And he'll be your child and he'll belong to you. I'll give him to you. I'll turn him over to you. Now, you know what you and I are apt to do? We're apt to make God all kinds of promises. Amen? I'll tell you, the most amazing thing it's ever going to be is is one of these days when men stand in judgment before God and all those fourth quarter oaths come in uh, and are cashed in, Brother Fred. You know what I'm talking about. All those fourth quarter football oaths. You with me? You understand what I'm saying now? Lord, please, just, just, just four more yards. Lord, please, I promise, just four more yards, I'll go to church. Liar. You didn't go to church when they lost or when they won, neither one. All these promises, and I say that tongue in cheek, but things that we have said to God, Lord, if you'll just do this in my life, I promise I'll straighten up, I'll get my life right. Lord, I promise I'll get, I'll get faithful in church, I'll start. Lord, if you'll fix my marriage, I promise you I'll get in church and I'll be faithful. Lord, if you'll just get me out of my financial mess that I'm in, I promise I'll start tithing God and I'll start giving to you. Lord, if you'll just bring my kids back to me, I promise I'll start raising them for the Lord and I promise I'll make my home what it needs to be. So often we pledge things to God. The Bible warns us against vowing a vow in vanity that the Lord will not hold us guiltless. At the end of the day, I'd say this, that so many of us make promises to God that we never keep. Hannah was not one of those people. 
The moment her answered prayer came, what did she say? She said, I got this baby because I asked him of God. Didn't come from me. Didn't just happen. Wasn't a miracle of Mother Nature, whoever she may be, that the pagans worship. It was the God of glory that granted this to me, and He granted it in response to my prayer to Him. She remembered her promise. I noticed a few things about that, and I guess you'll notice them with me too. One, I noticed that she was conscious to keep her promise. She named him Samuel. Why? Because I have asked him of the Lord. She was, she was attentive to remember that. I've said this before. I think that's why it's so good to keep a record of what we're praying for so that we're mindful when God uh, gives us that thing or grants that prayer or works in that matter or works in that situation to go back and recognize it was because we prayed and because God in His mercy heard and answered. She was conscious uh, to keep her promise. Number two, I find she was careful to keep her promise. Look down verse 21 with me. The Bible says, The man Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. I meditated on this verse for a while, trying to unriddle why Hannah did what she did. Some of y'all smarter than me probably see it right away, but it took me a few minutes to really zero in on what she was doing. Here's what I think. I, and, and it seems apparent, once you think of it this way, it's apparent from her words. She said, I want to bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. Here's what she was saying. I promise to give this child to God. I don't want to go up to Shiloh and worship and take this child back home. And then go the next year up to Shiloh and worship and take this child back home. I don't know how long she weaned him. It seems apparent when she finally delivers him to Eli and to the uh, tabernacle that he is able to serve and able to do things. I don't know how long it took her to wean him, but she maybe a third year. I don't want to go a third. Here's what she didn't want to do. She didn't want to get used to taking that thing and giving it to God and then taking it back. She was careful to keep her promise. How many times have you and I made promises to God, give it to Him only to take it back into our hand and go back home with it? Make promises to God. Lord, I promise I'm going to this and I'm going to that. Lord, I'm going to get right. I'm going to do right. And we give that thing to God, but we don't do it carefully. We don't do it prayerfully. We don't do it in a committed manner. And then we take that thing back in our hands and go back home with it. I think she was careful to keep her promise. And look at verse 26. Man, this is astounding. Look at it with me. Verse 26. The Bible says that she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. So she's she's acknowledging, admitting, I prayed, God answered my prayer. Look at verse 28. Now remember what her promise was. Lord, if you'll give me this child, I will give you this child. Verse number 28. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. You know what's amazing to me about that? You notice the change, right? Earlier in the chapter, I will give this to the Lord. Now she's saying, I will lend him to the Lord. Now she goes a step further and she says, as long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. Evidently, Hannah was looking beyond this life. If you come and borrow my weed eater and say, hey, listen, just let me borrow it till I die. Sorry, you can go find somebody else's weed eater. That's not borrowing. That's like, let me have your weed eater. Two two weeks in a row we've talked about weed eaters. I, I just got a chip on my shoulder about having to weed eat, and it's upsetting me. If I come to you and say, let me borrow your car, and I'll give it back to you when I die, you think, you ain't asking me to borrow. You're asking me to give you that car. You know why? Because you understand, and I understand those temporal matters we can't take beyond us into the next life. But Hannah says about Samuel, I will lend him to the Lord. And as long as he lives, he'll be lent. She wasn't saying when he dies, I'll come pick up the corpse. She was saying, I recognize this, that I'm giving him up for a season, but I'm going to take him back into my arms, back into my fellowship one day, one way or the other. Can I tell you something? Nothing that you give God do you ever lose. Nothing you give to God do you ever lose. It's true we have to be committed, temporally speaking. In her declaration, she was saying, I will give him to you, God. And she did give him to God. He never went back home to live in his mama's house again. She gave him to God. But she understands that anything she gives to God, she's just giving to him temporarily. One day, you know why that is? Because one day she knew she'd dwell in God's presence. As would Samuel. God would rejoin that family all back together once again. And she would see her boy once again. You know, anything we give to God, we're not really giving up. 
We're not really giving up. If it's something we don't need, then it's not us giving it. It's God in His mercy removing it and, 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 and taking the burden off of us. But the things that we love and treasure in life, the things that are the will of God for us to love and treasure in life, those things we don't ever really give up. We just lend them to God. He may keep them as long as we live, as long as that person lives, as long as the circumstances require. But at the end of the day, uh, we'll always get them back. You know why? Because if it belongs to Him, it'll dwell forever in His presence, as will we. I find that the Lord remembered her. And then look down in chapter 2. This won't take but just a moment. Look at chapter 2 with me. Verse number 18 of chapter number 2. The Bible says, But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto her own, unto their own home. Verse 21, the Bible says, And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So we find that the Lord shut up her womb initially. She prays and asks God to change her circumstances. And the Lord remembers her. Now, He had never forgot her, but it looked like He did, but He did not forget her. He worked in her life and granted her a child. She takes His child and gives His child to the Lord. And in one of these yearly visits back to Shiloh, when she goes back and she sees her boy, brings him a little coat for him to wear, uh, Eli blesses Elkanah and, and says, the Lord is going to grant the seed of this woman. That's a, that's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? Because we all know if we're students of the Bible or if you've ever taken a basic health class, you know that women don't have seed. But he's saying this, that as long as you lend this child to the Lord, God is going to grant that your union will be fruitful and you will bear children together. And the Bible says that in response to all this, the Lord visited Hannah. What does it mean to visit someone? Well, it means to uh, perpetually, or we might say on an ongoing basis, when you visit with people, you're going and seeing them from time to time to time to time. It means fellowship generally is what visiting means. It means coming to where they are at and dwelling with them for a short while. In other words, here's what I'm getting at. We find in the first, God's working in Hannah's life and she doesn't even know it. And it looks like a burden and it looks like barrenness, but really it's a blessing that God's going to bring out of it. And then God shows up and delivers in a mighty way. But God didn't stop working in her life after that one answered prayer. God had a perpetual relationship, had a perpetual working in Hannah's life. But when was it that the Lord visited her? I thought this was interesting. One, I see that the Lord visited her in the fulfillment of her duties. When was it that this took place? Or what is the, the, the context that prompts this? Verse 19 says, Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. In other words, every year she'd work all year to make this coat and every year she would come up and give this coat to her son. That sounds like someone that is diligent in the fulfillment of her responsibilities. Hey, she may have quit raising him, but she didn't quit being a mama to him. And she continued to minister to him. But I, I noticed sort of two ways she was fulfilling her duties. One, her duties to the sacrifices. In other words, she was, she was meeting her responsibility. It was her responsibility as a faithful Israelite every year to go up to Shiloh and to sacrifice. You know that often it's in the mon mundaneness of fulfilling our daily responsibilities that God works in the mightiest ways. Don't despise the day of small things. And listen, don't despise the day of ordinary things. God has the ability. You know God's in the business of taking that which is ordinary and making it extraordinary, right? That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us is that God has chosen the small things and the weak things. How often do we loathe the mundane nature of day-to-day -day life? How often do we grow to despise the daily responsibilities? But it was in those daily responsibilities, it was in that yearly trip to Shiloh that God worked mightily in her her life. She was fulfilling her duties to the sacrifices, but not only that, she was fulfilling her duty to the Son. To the Son. Why, and you know that had to be one of her bright days. You know that had to be a day she looked forward to all year long to be able to go and hug His neck 
be able to go and smell the top of his head, to be able to go and hear the lilt of his voice, to go and be able to just lay her eyes on her boy that she had granted and given unto the Lord and lent unto him. So much so that she had all year long, she was working on that coat, getting it ready to be able to take it up to Shiloh. You know what I see? It would have been very easy. And you and I might have been tempted to do this in the giving up of that child to say, I've just got to scrub my heart and scrub my mind of that child. I've got to try to forget about that son. If I can't raise him, if he can't be with me, then I've just got to dismiss that part of my life and try to move on. But not Hannah. No, Hannah said, I'm going to make sure that I keep a relationship with the son. You hear me? I'm going to keep a relationship with the son. So it's not just about responsibilities, it's about relationship. You know how God works mightily in your life and mine when we maintain that relationship with the Son. It would have been easy to drift because of the distance, but instead she ensured that she maintained a love for Him. And she constantly, she didn't look for Him to come to her, she looked to go to Him. Kind of reminds me of the New Testament. He's going to come to us, but guess what happens when He comes to us, then we go to Him. She was living daily, year by year, looking for that reunion. And then I noticed not only did he visit her in the fulfillment of her duties, but I noticed that he visited her in the faithfulness of her dependence. Man, this is fascinating to me. The blessing that Elkanah gives. I already mentioned it, but I'll mention it again. The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. In other words, you've loaned your child to God. The interest that God is going to pay you on this loan is you're going to continue to have more children. How many of you know there's a lot of money to be made in loaning money? Right? Not me and you. I just mean the people we owe money to. It's a great industry, the interest that's made off of loaning money. They don't do it. The bank don't do that because they love you. I hate to tell you that. They don't do it because they love you. They do it because they make money off of you. What is the interest that Hannah made off of loaning her child to God? God gave her more children. You know what that reaffirms to me? Two, Two simple thoughts. One, she accrued more by giving than she could by guarding. If she had guarded Samuel, if she had said, this is my child and I shouldn't have to give him to God, I shouldn't have to give up this part of my soul and part of my life unto the Lord, it's too much for God to ask, then she would have had that one son and maybe not had him for very long. But because she instead gave that child to the Lord, we find that God blessed her with five more children. And depending on how you feel about children, that might be a blessing or a burden. But undoubtedly, to a woman that had begged God for children, that was a blessing to her. It reminds me that in your life and mine, we accrue more by giving to God than we do by guarding what we have. And can I tell you what you got, God gave you in the first place. And when we get selfish with it and say, no, I can't give to the Lord. I can't be liberal with the Lord. I I can't tithe. I can't give of my time. I can't give of my talents. I can't give these things to God. We'll find that we'll always be the loser in that transaction. Not only that, I I find that she accomplished more by trusting than she could by taking. She could have said to herself, if I want to hear the laughter of a child in my home, I'm going to have to keep this child to me. Instead, she said, you know, God asked this child of me and I promised this child to God. And I'm going to trust that God will do more with my faith than he could with my fickleness. And so she gives that child to the Lord and says, I'm just going to trust that God knows what's best. And in doing so, God put more children in that home than she could have ever imagined. By trusting God with that child, God gave her more children. Can I tell you something? You can trust God with the precious things of your life. You can. You can trust Him with your marriage. You can trust Him with your children. You can trust Him with your home. You can trust Him with your job. You can trust Him with your joy and your happiness. You can trust Him with these things. He is a trustworthy God. You'll find that you'll get more done in your life by trusting God to do it than you ever could by taking the reins of that matter into your hands and trying to do it yourself. I'm glad to know that if a poor pitiful woman like Hannah God can hear her prayer. God can change her life. God can work mightily. God can change a nation through this woman. Imagine what He can do in your life and in my life if we'll only yield unto Him. Most people in this room ain't got half as many problems as Hannah had. Ain't got half as many obstacles as Hannah had. And God used her 
Imagine what he could do if you and I would yield unto him. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to the piano to play, the altar is open. I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. Whatever he spoke to your heart about, please don't hesitate. Respond obediently unto him. If you give the devil the first few seconds of this invitation, he might take the rest of it. So go ahead and give them to God and be obedient. Yield unto the Lord if he's worked on your heart. Father, I love you this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray you bless your people. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name.